and welcome to Prevention Works, the podcast of the Australian Prevention Partnership Centre. I'm Gretchen Miller and today it's all about the complexities of public health law and its relationship to health policy as we ask what is the role of law in public health as it applies to the prevention of chronic disease. And we have two guests, Dr Jenny Caldor, lawyer, public health researcher and until recently a senior policy analyst with the Tasmanian Department of Health. In the show today, Jenny's bringing her own perspectives on the field of public health law and the critical importance of a legal perspective to the prevention of chronic disease. Jenny took a brief advisory role in the Prevention Centre's latest knowledge synthesis on public health law, regulation and policy for prevention, which draws lessons from across nine years of projects. So also joining us is Maddie Heenan, who coordinated the knowledge synthesis and is currently working with us as a research officer while undertaking a PhD with the George Institute for Global Health, having completed her Masters in Social Change and Development. Jenny, let's start with you. You've just left your role at the Tasmanian Department of Health and you're about to consult in public health law with the World Health Organization as legislation and legal policy officer in the public health law and ethics team in Manila. And I mention this first because it's your expertise and commitment to public health law that takes you there. What will you be doing? So firstly, I just want to start by paying my respects to the traditional owners of the land that I'm coming from, which is the the Muanina people here in Hobart in beautiful Nipaluna. Pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. And in my role, which will I'll still be based in Hobart, but I'll be working remotely for the Manila office of WHO. I will be acting as a technical advisor on public health law. So an example would be reviewing public health legislation, for countries in the region that require that. A lot of our public health legislation throughout the world is a legacy of British colonial times. So even in a lot of Australian states and territories, these legislative structures can be quite out of date and reflect public health problems maybe of the 19th century and not necessarily of the 21st. And often, even in a developed country like Australia, we don't always have the technical expertise or knowledge or capacity to update this. It's a huge project. So South Australia has very up-to-date public health legislation, but other Australian states and territories don't. So I'll be providing that technical expertise on structural issues like legislation, but also specific public health legal interventions, which I think is going to be a big subject that we get into later on in the podcast. Fantastic. It sounds really exciting. And I wondered if you could provide for us a brief overview of the philosophy of public health law. So in my work in this area, I've tended to prefer a more Australian definition, which comes from Christopher Reynolds. And it is the definition that public health law always retains its distinct public focus. And Reynolds notes, it's not about individual healthcare issues or the legal consequences of clinical negligence. So what we might call medical law and which people might be more familiar with. Rather, Reynolds says, it provides the powers and creates the structures that assist the task of preventing disease and allowing the opportunities for longer and healthier lives. And I can drill down into that a bit more about some of the key words there, because when Reynolds says it retains a distinct public focus, I think that already opens up a range of different definitions. So when we're talking about public, we're very much talking about 
public as opposed to private or public because it affects a huge swathe of the public or of the population or public because it involves the choices and actions of government, either that those choices and actions have caused the problem or that the solutions to the problem might lie within the choices and actions of government or public in the sense that this, I think, applies in all countries, public in the sense that the problem is being caused by something that only governments have the ability or the powers to address. So air quality, for example, I might individually face some burden or disability in my health due to air quality, but my ability to control that is far outside my reach and requires collective action, which is usually undertaken by government. And on that point, on air quality, for example, and perhaps going even more internationally than air quality, you could look at, hmm, I don't know, let's see the climate crisis and matters arising. But anyway, you, you wrote in a recent Lancet Commission, which had shared authorship, that 21st century global health risks can be addressed using law as a powerful tool for advancing global health. And we'll get to the complexities of that actually being an international issue shortly. But also, in fact, that public health law is poorly understood in the public health community. So could you tell me then what public health law in Australia is in relation to, say, public health policy and how they intersect and support one another? So a key aspect of both public health and then public health law is the idea of prevention. So if a government was seeking to prevent a particular public health problem, what kind of tools does a government have at its disposal? So governments have the power to give or take away money. That's a key tool at the government's disposal. They have power and control so they can wield influence in various different ways. But another key tool that really only governments possess is the power to make laws and regulations. And to me, and Maddie might have a different take on this, for me, laws and regulations are a subset of policy tools. So policy, to me, is an aim or objective that a government might seek to implement. So say the aim or objective is to reduce smoking rates in the population. You might then drill down to the level of, okay, to achieve that aim or objective, what are the policy tools at our disposal? Okay, that toolbox includes information, education, health promotion, campaigns, and then the more legal or regulatory toolkit, which are legislation, regulations, orders, all the mandatory instruments that we think about as being legally enforceable. So as in the smoking example, you might have a non-regulatory tool like information provision, and then you might have a regulatory tool such as mandated plain packaging, of which Australia was a pioneer, in which situation it is, it's mandatory, so the, the industry must do it, and it's enforceable, they will get a fine if they don't do it. Right. Thank you very much. Maddie, let's bring you in now. The knowledge synthesis that you've put together for the Prevention Centre also came up with a definition of public health law. What did you decide to put under the banner of that term? Yeah, so the definition actually stems a lot from what Jenny just said, and that's because part of our our approach to this knowledge synthesis was to hold research policy dialogues with our policy partners. And through that, we wanted to talk about what our partners understood public health law to be and what kind of work they were already doing in that area. And I guess for some, the definition was quite similar, but I think sometimes there's a little bit of a disconnect between policy and law and regulation. I kind of see them as being part of the same category under public health law and that's how it's traditionally 
defined I've, I've found anyway in the literature but maybe in practice it's not necessarily seen that way so while they are all tools for governments to use policy is often seen a little bit separate to law and regulation but then sometimes they're used interchangeably but for the synthesis we sort of had two schools of of thought i guess some more high level big policy frameworks that set the the regulatory agenda an example of that's the national preventive health strategy and then we we classified public health law as implementation tools to achieve policy goals which which really aligns with what jenny just said but that can have legislative and non-legislative instruments so that can be legislation and regulation codes and standards, voluntary guidelines. But then also we talked about including things like inter-organisational policy within government across departments, something like built environment guidelines, and then maybe even intra, like internal organisational policy, like healthy food provision directives for, for hospitals. We didn't talk, I think, probably enough about educational tools because they obviously fit in that spectrum but I don't think we kind of have quite found a good place to put that but I think they all kind of complement each other. Can I build on something that Maddie was saying then which is that whenever I'm trying to define public health law there's always this issue of scope that creeps in where you want to make a broad argument for the applicability and relevance and need and urgency of public health law but you don't want to be accused of a land grab either in terms of what is public health or what is law and so it is a really tricky balance to define those terms for example if you talk about something being a public health issue due to the choices and actions of government it could be an infinite regression back to say policy around educational attainment that then leads to low literacy levels that then leads to poor public health outcomes a generation down the track is that a public health issue or is it an education issue? Is it it's broadly the social determinants of health as we describe them? But would it come within the remit of someone working in public health law? Possibly not. Possibly yes. That's a, a, a challenge. And then conversely, something like an educational policy that Maddie just referenced a moment ago, it could and is very likely to have legislative underpinnings. So there might be a law that requires education on a particular topic to be provided. Do we call that a law? or do we call that an educational policy? We can call it both, but if we were putting it in the hierarchy of policies, I'd probably locate it at the ed education and informational end rather than how it's actually implemented, which is through a statute, most likely. Mm, I mean, I guess when I think of law, I think of something enforceable, Yeah. something I must do. If I don't wear my seatbelt, I get a fine. If yeah. I smoke in a, inside a building, I'll get a fine. I see that as law, whereas policy more is something that encompasses law, perhaps, yeah. as one of its tools. So, okay, so those definitions are super interesting. And obviously, it seems like there are a number of interpretations of what public health law means. And perhaps that's a problem. And perhaps that flexibility is a good thing. You know, these things are iterative, right? But Maddie, I wanted to ask you as a health advocate and researcher, could you expand on the role of advocacy and its relationship to research and policy and law? Sure. I guess the activities that really go hand in hand. I have also seen people define public health law as being like the traditional legal functions, but also all the related legal and regulatory activities that, that go with that. And that's policy development, advocacy, 
monitoring and enforcement and evaluation. And so I think that there's a role for all of that within this space that we're calling public health law. And so for advocacy and research, they're also tools within the the policy landscape and really important tools because what we do in public health is we really try and promote evidence-based policy making in practice. And so you really need the research evidence there to make your case. And that research evidence really needs to be there so that you can properly advocate and ask for the things that you want to ask for. So I guess in, in my advocacy work, we have really relied and valued on research in this space to make a case for why we might need certain regulations. Perhaps there's something missing within our framework. The classic example that I often refer back to is marketing regulation, particularly for junk food, alcohol and gambling. So it's quite an unregulated area. They all have slightly different frameworks that are largely self-regulated. Some components are government regulated, but I think, you know, they're quite old, these frameworks and marketing has just really changed. It's completely digital now. It's all data driven and our regulation just hasn't kept up with that. And so having people conduct research in this area kind of really gives you something tangible to point to when you're advocating or you're meeting with certain decision makers and policy makers so that you can show them what the problem is and hopefully maybe potentially provide them with a solution that they can act on. And I guess it, it, it also becomes, law becomes political as well, because we know the power of the lobby groups, we know the power of the cigarette, the, the tobacco lobby, for example, and people often kind of laugh slightly cynically about the idea of things being voluntary in terms of codes, because sometimes when there's a big industry behind it, that's going to just mean lip service and not genuine action. So it becomes an incredibly tricky space, I imagine. Like Australians are quite uh, compliant, really, in in lots of ways. But when do you sort of say, OK, look, actually, we need to make this law and stop fiddling around the edges? And in fact, of course, is an economic outcome for the entire country if, for example, people continue to smoke inside. Yeah, I, I mean, it's obviously a political issue, but it, there's also the issues get politicised and that's, I think, something that we also captured in the synthesis. There's one of the themes that came out of the work was political environment and considerations. So sort of understanding the context within which you're working in, both in terms of what certain jurisdictions can do, but also sort of knowing maybe what their ideological standpoint is and whether certain policies and regulations are even going to have cut through with that particular government of the day. And some of our research at the Prevention Centre has has touched on things like that. And then industry relationships and tactics, you know, that was another theme coming out of the synthesis that sort of relates to public health law. And there's a number of studies that analyse those tactics and other ones that monitor self-regulatory practice. And so I guess that's going back to my point about making the case for regulation. If you currently have a self-regulatory system, it might work fine. But generally speaking, in public health, it doesn't just because of the clear conflicts of interest in these industries promoting harmful products. Their remit and their business imperative is to make money, which is the opposite of the public health goal, which is for people to consume less of those unhealthy products. So having them regulate themselves 
is is a conflict there's not really an imperative for them to do that so research that can can demonstrate that they're that they're not doing it well they might be monitoring the industry voluntary guideline and demonstrating that there's there's low uptake of the voluntary code or there's no compliance with it or whatever the problem might be it's something to sort of point to and to demonstrate that that's an issue that needs fixing just to build on that i completely agree with what Maddie was saying about the importance of evidence in this space and I think sometimes in public health research we've been overly focused on those interventions that target individuals and so put on your seatbelt, don't smoke, consume less salt, these are things, outcomes that we want individuals to do whereas in other areas of research or policy making or the body of work called regulatory studies they've been more focused on how governments can get businesses or corporations to behave in a different way. So how do you achieve outcomes from institutions? And in bringing the idea of the corporate determinants of health or the commercial determinants of health into public health, this provides the linkage between those two things. So governments can influence corporations to do certain things, which in turn influences the health of the population and individuals within that population. So a good example there is Sometimes companies do have a vested interest to, for example, sell products that are high in salt, but at other times they'll be very open to having what they refer to as a level playing field. And I found this in my research on salt reduction in South Africa. Companies were not opposed to having a lower salt threshold as long as every company was going to be made to stick to the same threshold. So they, what they wanted was consistency and mandatoriness and they wanted comprehensive coverage of companies across the board from small, medium to large because they didn't want some companies being able to wriggle out of it, which in a voluntary system they very much could. So I think when we're talking about the tools ranging from voluntary to mandatory, we also have to think about tools ranging from targeting corporations to targeting individuals. And some interventions that are going to be extremely effective at targeting individuals will not be effective in targeting corporations and vice versa. Jenny, I'm going to come back to you in more depth in a moment. But Maddie, before we go on, and perhaps we've jumped the gun a little here, can you briefly outline the aims of the Prevention Centre's knowledge synthesis as you undertook it? Yeah, the the synthesis, it's, it's a little bit different to like a regular kind of review. I sort of touched on this already by, by mentioning the policy dialogues that we had. And that is the critical thing, isn't it? It's not to just decide what you're going to research and go out and research it, but to actually engage with the end users who are the policy makers and ask them what they want to yeah, find ab- out about. Absolutely. Yeah. So because we all know that there can be issues with translating evidence into action, into policies and into practice, just for a variety of reasons that there can be problems and challenges with that. And so I suppose one way to help minimise that is to engage directly with policymakers, with end users to know exactly what they are needing in terms of evidence and what way we can present that for them as well. And, and so that was kind of, I guess, the start of thinking about this synthesis and, and taking a more collaborative approach and, and a systems sort of approach by embedding policymakers into the process. So what we did is we had 
the involvement of a research content lead, a communications lead, which is really important for the translation at, at the end, and a policy lead to, to make sure that we had that policy relevance and policy expertise. And the other way that this was a little bit different to a typical systematical rapid review is, is we were concerned mostly with the evidence from the prevention centre in this first instance and anyone else that wanted to sort of replicate this work might might do otherwise but we wanted to look at a selective body of work and draw from the research and expertise within the prevention centre so it wasn't meant to be a comprehensive review of, of all the evidence in a given area. It was certainly informed by the literature but the emphasis was more on identifying, drawing out and synthesizing findings and expertise from across our programs of work so that we could generate new learnings and insights for for both future research and for policy making. So Jenny, given the connection of complex moving parts that we're talking about here, how much do policymakers, researchers, advocates generally understand about the intersections between law, as someone like yourself understands it, and what they do? I think the understanding is probably variable across the different groups that you've mentioned. And I think that the the understanding can depend on the exposure that people have had. So say in an area of public health policy making, such as tobacco control, where there's actually global frameworks and mandatory international treaties that regulate this area. So from the highest levels down to the local government level, it's law as the tool that is being used for prevention. I think people working in those areas would have a strong understanding of the role of law in prevention of chronic disease. However, if you're working in an area like physical activity, perhaps that's been less on your radar as where the tools of law and regulation even have a role to play, let alone where you might be coming up against barriers due to unhelpful laws and regulations, which is another part that I think we haven't really touched on yet. I think that another thing that people maybe don't understand is that evidence means a variety of different things. So you can have the evidence of a public health problem. So evidence that there is a problem might come from epidemiological evidence, evidence of hospital admissions or burden on the health system due to a particular issue. So say hypertension. And then we know that within hypertension, one of the causes might be high salt consumption and then high salt consumption. One of the causes might be a particular processed food. And then one of the solutions might be reduce salt in that one particular processed food. So as you can see, evidence is multi-layered. And then we still haven't even talked about evidence relating to what kind of interventions are effective or politically feasible. So evidence can relate to things other than simply the burden of disease or the epidemiology. Evidence could be how receptive is the political government going to be right now? Do we have what is called a policy window? That is actually, that's not like a kind of finger to the wind issue. That's actually an issue of evidence that I think sometimes it's underappreciated that there are researchers in all areas, including social researchers, economic researchers, in addition to the public health researchers and the public health law researchers that have a role to play in putting together the evidentiary puzzle needed to advocate for the role of law in a particular space. And look, the, sometimes you might put the puzzle together and see that actually law is not the solution to a particular problem. Maybe removing a law is, a, is the issue. Maybe deregulation of a particular space might be helpful. But such, as, mm, such as what? What would be an example of that? I can think of issues, uh, going back to the physical activity example, where 
for example, there might be particular planning and environmental laws that have gotten in the way of having cycle paths in a particular area or walkability or even like land use, ability of people to use the natural environment and or the built environment in a particular way due to what is probably a very sensible or necessary law for another purpose. And so taking public health into account in those other purposes might put another overlay that was not visible in the initial purpose. Oh my goodness, it's so complicated. (laughs) And to complicate it further, let's step back and look at an even bigger picture, again via your Lancet Commission article. As you point out, the health risks we all face in the 21st century are beyond the control of any one government in any one country. And that means that governments and states need to cooperate. And I wondered if you could speak to global health and public health law. When you wrote that article, it was published just about the time when we we hit COVID-19, which suddenly became a a global concern, uh, the likes of which I don't think we've faced in my lifetime with respect to health, yeah. Exactly, well, as a provocation, I could say we have faced it in all of our lifetimes, it just hasn't seemed acute. So heart disease, globally is actually on that scale but it's not infectious is it that's a it's a whole different thing it is it's not infectious but it does have the same toll of morbidity and mortality road accidents motor vehicle accidents are in many countries of the world a incredible burden of disease that is amenable to law and regulation as we know but i uh, i'll take away my provocative approach and agree that <laughs> i love a bit of provocation <laughs> please provoke away it's, it's good. true that the the, the most prevalent word we hear about COVID is that it's unprecedented. But I think what one of the things that made it truly unprecedented was that it genuinely galvanised the attention and the resources and the, the staffing and the money and the, the focus of the world. And even like right at the beginning of the pandemic, it mobilised a collective will to actually look out for each other and look out for the most vulnerable by doing unprecedented acts of social justice and solidarity, such as staying home and missing out on work, school and public gatherings and social events, not necessarily for our own selves, but to protect those around us. So I do think that is unprecedented. And I think it brought together many themes in, in, a, in a sort of a condensed way that we, that hopefully, it is my hope that we will learn the lessons of COVID and apply them to other more chronic or injury-based public health issues. When you wrote the piece, though, it was pre-COVID. So what were you all thinking about at that time? When we framed up the context for the Lancet report, we there were big, huge driving forces such as climate then leading to rising toll of particular diseases, but then climate leading to climate refugees and refugee health issues being their own specific issues. We were cognizant of the fact that there were other Lancet commissions specifically addressing climate change and the law. And so we tried not to go too much onto that territory because that could actually be the whole story. And we focused on synthesizing the evidence from public health law and sort of scaling it up to a global level, recognizing that maybe in more developed countries, some of the issues are issues about say, overconsumption of unhealthy goods. Whereas in less developed countries, it might be about uh, the under availability of resources. So under or malnutrition or things like work health and safety or a motor vehicle accident that are still a very high cause of death and injury in many countries around the world. 
you talk about the legal determinants of health. There are four of them. And that's really interesting terminology because I think we're perhaps more familiar and more comfortable talking about the social and economic determinants. Mm. Could you speak to that? Yeah, we came up with this term, the legal determinants of health, knowing that people would hopefully be familiar with the social determinants of health. And we were offering this up as a way to think about the fact that law doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's not its own little thing disconnected from society or economics. It, in fact, is deeply enmeshed with these other things. It underpins and sets the frameworks for many of these ideas. So we were trying to speak about a world in which law could provide sort of a, an infrastructure within which those other objectives can be met. So the four legal determinants that we identified, the first one was law being used to translate vision into action on sustainable development. So this harks back to a point that Maddie made earlier where you can have a strategy, but then if it's either not funded or not enshrined with legislation, then a strategy is just purely aspirational and, and doesn't really get you to a concrete outcome. So if the sustainable development goals of the UN are goals for all nations to achieve, but law can create some concrete strategies to put those in place and can achieve things like putting a milestone in that then might have a review to, to measure progress against where you've come. And then if things are mandatory, then you can report against them or you can fund them. You can do different things to, to get from a more aspirational statement to a more concrete outcome, I suppose. Our second legal determinant was that law can be used to strengthen the governance of national and global health institutions. So there are lots of health institutions ranging from the WHO at the highest level down to really local bodies for health. And within each of the, those, you'll have legal policies or frameworks governing the way they operate. Things concerns such as transparency is often an issue for global health both in terms of funding and who institutions deal with, so who they take their money from and who influences the direction of their policy. So this kind of ties into a conversation we're having nationally in Australia at the moment about integrity commissions and so on, but it's sort of using that kind of idea in the space of global health. Our third legal determinant was the one that we're probably most familiar and that we've most talked about so far in the discussion, which is the idea of law as a tool. So law can be used to implement what we described as fair, evidence-based health interventions. And these are our specific legal interventions in health, such as mandatory plain packaging on cigarettes or something like mandating the nutrition facts panel on all packaged foods, mandatory seatbelt wearing, health and safety regulations, which all businesses must abide by. So the sort of big interventions that require law to implement them. And our fourth one, which is, I think, gaining a bit more traction at the moment, and it is the idea of legal capacity for health and building that legal capacity, strengthening it for the future. This is about the linkages between law and public health and better training across both disciplines in order to upskill lawyers in public health and public health people in what, what benefit law can bring. This is, I'm, I've been very sort of delighted to see in the years since I moved from being a lawyer to being a public health legal practitioner, there's just been a, a huge influx of people with an interest or moving in from one profession into the other, either doctors who want to understand more about law or policy or lawyers who want to upskill by doing an MPH or working in the health context. And so instead of only having maybe academic understanding or academic expertise, it's actually that practitioner base so that then there's strong linkages between research 
and implementation and policymakers. And I don't know if we'll ever see law firms that specialise in, in public health law, but we may at least see specialist bodies that with the technical expertise to assist in these problems. I think that particular report and the legal determinants of health, that that expression or, or whatever you want to call it in the, the actual points that Jenny went through, I've found them really useful throughout my work, like this synthesis, but, but other stuff, just to sort of, I guess, help bridge some of that divide between people working in public health and people who have more of a legal background. So like I'm not a lawyer, but I've worked in policy and regulation and and the sort of term public health law even was a bit new to me. And I find that a lot of people working in government also aren't necessarily familiar with that term. I think because it comes from America that it's maybe a little bit different, a little bit new. And I think maybe that's also why sometimes there's a bit of disconnect with some of the definitions and understanding in the area. And I think kind of conceptualizing the legal determinants of health puts it in a lens that's familiar to a lot of people. And so, yeah, I think that's a really great piece of work. What I found really interesting, Jenny, about the way you framed that outline of the legal determinants of health is you mentioned social justice as a as a bit of a key driver. And I'm thinking now about social justice as a term because we tend not to associate it with actual legal frameworks, but ethical and moral ones. Can you speak to that social justice law, public health intersection? Yeah. I think that's a real that's a really, really important point. Social justice is at the core of public health but it is not always at the core of legal practice even though depending on who you ask it it really should be and we think about legal practice as um, it should be things like everyone having a right to a fair trial or issues like equality before the law but in reality it might often be that vested interests have a lot more clout or access to the courts or access to expensive lawyers and so on so if we're talking about public health where it's issues like equity and fairness and ensuring that people have the opportunity to live a flourishing life where they can achieve their highest level of well-being and health. And so it's trying to combine those ideas of what can the law do to set a level playing field for people to achieve that? What are the legal structures that are fair and transparent and open to community consultation, community participation, shared design, the ability for people who are users or stakeholders of a law to actually have input into its development rather than only being something that is imposed from above. And I think that's a concept that can be sometimes just really challenging to us, even in a democracy where we at an intellectual level, we know that we elect our representatives and they work for us, but we don't always think of ourselves as maybe end users or stakeholders to the laws being enacted. A specific example of this, I think, is universal health coverage, such a big concept. Can you explain how law can do this, given the multitude of jurisdictions it would be applicable to? And It's not just about jurisdictions, is it? It's about culture. I think Australians, for example, find it mind-boggling that Americans would say we don't want universal health care. So Maddie was talking about earlier inter- or intra-governmental arrangements. So even the existence of, take Medicare as an example, there are statutes that establish Medicare, there are statutes governing how it works, 
eligibility for certain benefits, access to who who is covered by it. So if you're a, a citizen or a resident of Australia, you have access to the scheme, but then certain other people, such as refugees, might be able to gain access. So there is that is all set down in legislation and regulation, and it's I think often misunderstood as a purely economic arrangement, but it's it's underpinned by policy decisions that are implemented through law. And when countries are seeking to expand their universal healthcare access, it's a really complex task to, I guess, disentangle and then rebuild the governance arrangements that help to support universal health coverage. You make a number of recommendations in that key paper for The Lancet, too numerous and complex to list here, but we'll certainly provide a link to it on our website. But can you talk to the broad intention of those recommendations? Yeah, I guess the the overarching intent, and without sounding too self-serving because it was a group of experts on law and public health, was really to increase the awareness of the possibilities of what better understanding and better linkages and better resourcing for law can actually do to improve global health. So understanding what already exists and mapping the the potential and then what are the gaps and what how could we realize that potential through adding or enhancing the capacity that is already there. I just wanted to sort of add to that point but also to Jenny's earlier comment about participatory governance and the involvement of the community in regulatory design and electing officials so that they can see the particular policy objectives that they want to see for the future. I think that that's something that really comes out of some of this work in the synthesis, but also other work that we're doing at the Prevention Centre. It also speaks to the points that we were talking about earlier about advocacy. By talking about this field of work where we're making people more aware that it even exists because it's it's not exactly new work, but it's newly categorised or like defined and maybe previously occurring in siloed areas. So it's now kind of more coming together and I think demonstrating that there's different types of evidence for different purposes in the policy process, but then also the need to have community engagement, understanding their support for things, but also having them actually involved in in design and participation, whether that be directly or indirectly through advocacy, I think is really kind of important and something that's kind of highlighted in this work and in some other work that we're we're doing as well. Maddie, what did you find via your knowledge synthesis regarding the role of public health law in prevention in Australia? What was the what was the outcome of your synthesis? Yeah, well, I guess there were a couple of main things. I suppose the, the this particular piece of work was a bit more of a mapping exercise to look at what body of work was in this space and we found there were 12 projects and 40 publications that the prevention center had funded in that was relevant to public health law and when we looked at the type of research undertaken they were largely regulatory analyses but also studies that were developing new methods or indicators to support evaluation studies investigating governance and policy frameworks evaluating impacts on health or behavioural outcomes, other research looking at the perspectives on regulation and industry relationships and tactics. They're the categories of research as we sort of define them and we've been talking about all these different categories of evidence throughout the podcast as well. So I guess it just sort of demonstrates how you need lots of diverse different types of evidence to suit different needs within the public health law and policy landscape. And then 
We also undertook a thematic analysis and as part of that we identified five main themes from all of the included studies and I guess again this is kind of focusing on a bunch of things that we've already touched on so it's just sort of I guess emphasizing our, our points that monitoring and evaluation are really important. We found a lot of political environment and considerations were a key focus within within the research, regulatory design, implementation and enforcement. So things looking at key design features, what elements of the regulation make it effective, are they monitored and enforced in engagement, collaboration and co-production. So research that looked at working with other departments, so co-benefits type research, also working with communities. So there was one study that looked at community-driven alcohol regulation and studies that looked at equity and disadvantage. So there were just a broad range of different topics of research that public health law research really focuses on. So what happens after this, having done this knowledge synthesis, what comes next? We're just in the process of finalising the report, which is exciting. It's the bits that come next to just demonstrate the importance of investment within this space and in this type of research. So public health law can really help make the case for prevention. And there's a wide range of, of different strategies that can be used. And so I think what this synthesis really demonstrates is that and it provides a lot of different case studies of, of really diverse work, things focusing on the built environment, on tobacco, on food, and then community surveys asking their thoughts on particular policies. So there's a lot in there. I think it'll be interesting and, and useful to a range of different people. Jenny, what happens next for you in your in your new work, but also in this field as it's evolving globally? Yeah, well, um, so in a couple of weeks, I'll be wrapping up here in Tasmanian Public Health, where I've been 100% working on COVID-19 policy. And I'll be sort of stepping into a different space with the WHO in Manila. So that'll be, I guess, a broader range of public health issues, but also a wider scope. So from the local or state-based to the regional-based, so it's going to be interesting and I think quite challenging. What I'm really excited about is the expansion of possibilities for public health law careers that I think COVID-19 might have put on people's radars. Before I started my PhD, like when I was a lawyer trying to move into public health, people used to say to me, what does law have to do with public health? I used to get that question a lot and they really don't ask that question anymore. I think one of the silver linings of the pandemic is that it's, it's really explained what law has to do with public health and that a lot of things that we take for granted in our life to safeguard or promote public health are actually legal and regulatory frameworks. And I like to think that if I was a young lawyer coming up through law school now, I might consider public health as a career and that there will be scope to not just like leave your law degree behind and go into the public service as a generic policy person, but to bring the true skills of public health law. And and then it's a as those possibilities expand, there's a sort of a, a, a gain that's made by then having more expertise that can be shared, more knowledge, more mentoring and more scope to develop within the really cross-disciplinary profession that is public health practice. I did just wanted to add to Jenny's point about the field growing and there being a renewed and new interest in it at the Prevention Centre. We also have a 
community of practice on public health law and that's researchers and policy makers and practitioners coming together to sort of hear about different types of work that they're doing whether that's in research or practice it's it's not a big group but it's growing every single time which I think is really exciting and I think a lot of people are curious about the area and want to kind of do and know more so that's another really exciting thing that we that we're doing at the Prevention Centre and, and Jenny's actually been been a, a presenter for that session too which is which is cool. What a great place to leave it. It's been an incredible conversation. Really appreciate your time. Dr. Jenny Caldor and Maddie Heenan. And listeners, you'll find more information on the Prevention Centre's website. I'm Gretchen Miller. See you next time.